Revelation chapter 12. If we were to try to sum up uh, what we have seen in chapters 4 through 11, we could do so in three words. Worship, judgment, and victory. And the three words are not unrelated. In chapter 4, John is taken up into the presence of God. And what does he hear there? What does he see there? But uh, creatures and God's people worshiping God. That is, ascribing worth to him. He is worthy. John hears and sees about a scroll with seven seals and only one is worthy to open the seals and that is the Lamb. In line with worship comes the second word that is judgment. Um, and we've, we've talked about this as we've gone through. Most people don't understand the connection between judgment and worship. But judgment is an expression of God's holiness. God says these are the things you're supposed to do. These are the things you're not supposed to do. And he cares whether or not you obey him, whether or not you disobey him. And so God's people who want to obey him pray for justice because they have been uh, the victims of injustice. And we've seen two cycles of sevens, the seven seals and the seven trumpets in which God pours out judgment on those who have broken the covenant. We've also seen that judgment is connected to God's people, the numbered and numberless, those in heaven and on earth, because they cry out for justice. How long, O Lord, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth? Then the third word is victory. After the seventh trumpet, and we saw this last week, an angel uh, where John hears a voice that comes from heaven saying, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And in response, the elders fall on their knees and worship God. The idea of victory, though, doesn't simply come up in chapter 11. We saw it as early as chapter 5, in which uh, John sees a scroll, it has seven seals, and no one in heaven or on earth is worthy to open it, and John begins to weep. One of the elders says, don't, don't weep, there is someone who is worthy. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. So, we could summarize again, worship, judgment, triumph, or victory. But now we come to chapter 12. And if you just read along out loud, there is a significant difference. There is really a shift. There is almost a palpable change not only in tone, but also the use of imagery in this section. It's been argued that the first 11 chapters of the book of Revelation deal with the victory of Christ over his enemies. Um, and at the end of chapter 11, we have the temple of God, which is the church. The second half of the book of Revelation, from chapter 12 to chapter 22, deals with the victory of the church over her enemies. And it ends up in chapter 22 with the church as the temple of God. So the first and the second half of the book deal with basically the same things, but from different perspectives. Um, we will see many of the same images or similar images that we saw in the first half. So uh, we will see now the great red dragon, who is the one, the angel of the abyss. 
We have the 144,000 mentioned in chapter 7. They will be mentioned in chapter 14. We have seven bowls, and those will match almost identically the seven trumpets that we have seen. Babylon is mentioned. This will be the same city where our Lord was crucified, we saw in chapter 11. The New Jerusalem is another symbol for the new temple of God, which is the church. In the first half, we have various symbols for the Lamb of God. He is glorious in power. He opens the book of mysteries. He avenges the martyred saints. He sends judgments on his enemies. In the second half of the book, we have the church that is being persecuted. It is in conflict with demonic and worldly powers. It survives all persecution. It triumphs. It appears as the bride of the Lamb. By the way, the church is the bride in contrast to Babylon, which is a prostitute. A bride versus a prostitute. And the church appears as the temple of God with men glorious in her beauty. But there's a question that needs to be answered, and I don't know if you've considered it or if it's come to your mind. You know, in light of worship, judgment, triumph, why are God's people persecuted and martyred? We might ask in addition, why is there this hostility against God's people? Why must the church endure economic sanctions, being ostracized from society and imprisonment? Why is there persecution if the Lamb of God has triumphed? If Jesus has won the victory, then why is the church being persecuted? Why do we even have martyrs? And why do they cry out for vindication? And why hasn't it happened? To answer these questions and more, John goes back to the beginning to talk about the conflict that the church is facing, the persecution, to see it as something that goes way, way back to the beginning. The conflict between Satan and the woman. Between Satan and the woman's seed. There are two visions in this chapter. We will spend most of our time today only looking at the first one. I will go quickly through the second, but the Lord willing, we'll come back and look at it in greater detail next week. And then the third part, which is critical, and that's why we're going to do the whole chapter today. I don't want to leave you hanging, but again, the Lord willing, next week we will come and fill in the gaps. Um, In the first vision, we have the two main players who are described in some detail. And then the battle between them happens in the blink of an eye. I mean, it it just happens so quickly. Um, In the second vision, we have more details. It's another battle, a battle that takes place in heaven. Here we have Michael. Um, But in both, we have the woman being pursued by the dragon. And that leads us into the third section, which we will look at again, the Lord willing, next week. Let's look at the first six verses here in Revelation chapter 12. Verse 1. A great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of twelve stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his heads. His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child the moment it was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. 
and her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the desert to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. I, I would dare say that everything that we studied, this is perhaps, at least on the first reading, seems to be the most difficult, and yet some of it seems very, very familiar. I've told you a number of times, and I want you to remember, that in studying the book of Revelation, it is critical to know the Old Testament. That is the language that is being used. Those are the symbols and the metaphors that are being used. Otherwise, we might assign our own meanings to this and come up with something entirely different than what was intended. It's like putting a puzzle together. Sometimes you force the pieces together that don't belong together, and as a result, the puzzle cannot be completed. For John's readers, the Old Testament was their scripture. It was what they were familiar with. They were far more familiar with the Old Testament than I fear God's people are today. And today, rather than trying to immerse ourselves in the Old Testament, what I find is that most Christians stick to the New Testament, and when it comes to something they don't understand, they simply put in their own meaning, their own reasoning, their own rationalization of what it means, and oftentimes they are wrong. I would just tell you, by the way, if we have no need for the Old Testament, you know, if, if we can put our own meanings for what's written in the New Testament, that means we don't need the Old Testament, then we, we need to, we can sort of shorten our worship service here. We'll just cut out the reading from the Old Testament. We'll just have the reading from the New Testament. This is not the case. Both the Old Testament and the New Testament are scripture. They are God-breathed and are useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. With that in mind, let's look at what John describes here. First of all, the woman. He starts out by saying a great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven. Only three times in the book of Revelation does John talk about a sign. But let's not misunderstand. He's not saying all the rest is literal and only this is symbolic, that this signifies. Rather, this is something that is very important. It is central to what he is trying to get across. Um, and the first great sign is a woman clothed with the sun and with the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. At this point, we don't know who the woman is, and that's good. Because um, if we start at verse 5, I think we'd start off on the wrong track. We start at verse number 1. But the way that John describes it, we know that this is not a literal woman. This is not a specific woman, but this is something that symbolizes. This is a symbol. Uh, she represents something. Now, stop and think a minute. If you know your Old Testament, even if you're not great in the Old Testament, can you think of an incident in the Old Testament that involves the sun, moon, and stars? And maybe this will help you. The sun, moon, and 11 stars. Not 12, but 11 stars. It's found in the book of Genesis. It's the story of Joseph. That Joseph had a dream that the sun, his father Jacob, the moon, his mother Rachel, and his eleven brothers bowed down and worshipped him. Well, here we have the twelve stars, so Jake, uh, Joseph is included there. The sun, moon, and stars, this represents the people of God, Israel. Jacob with his wife Rachel and his twelve sons. And so that, I think, is what is intended here by the woman. This, I think, will be reinforced as we go along. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. 
Now, she was with child. This is an expression that is used of Mary in Matthew chapter 1. She was about to give birth. Now, this language to us, I mean, we're thinking, okay, she's pregnant. She, you know, she's with child. She's about to give birth. She cries out, oh, I get this part. This is when a woman is pregnant. I, I have been told that women have been known to cry out in the midst of giving birth. Um, so that's what it's talking about. No. Let's go back to the Old Testament. The image of a woman in labor and about to give birth is an image used of God's people. We find it a number of times in Isaiah. We find it also in Micah. I'll only mention the one from Isaiah. Isaiah 26. As a woman with child and about to give birth writhes and cries in her pain, so were we in your presence, O Lord. We were with child, we writhed in pain, but we gave birth to the wind. We have not brought salvation to the earth. We have not given birth to the people of the world. In other words, as Isaiah sees it, here is Israel, God's people. They are the ones who are supposed to provide Messiah. They are the ones to give birth to Messiah, and they have been writhing like a woman in labor, waiting for the Messiah to come. And it hasn't happened. It has not happened. If this is an Old Testament image of God's people in the Old Testament, a woman who is in labor getting ready to give birth. By the way, you, from Christmas you know the story uh, or you know the prophecy, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Well, if you look in Isaiah chapter 7, God, through Isaiah the prophet, tells Ahaz the king, don't worry, this enemy, this, this incredibly powerful enemy that's coming to defeat you, he's not going to touch you. You'll be fine. And if you need proof, ask for a sign. I'll give you a sign. And Ahaz will, oh, I would never, I would never ask for a sign. God's not very happy with that because he offered a sign. And so then Isaiah says to him, um, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son. But back up a bit. The Lord said to Ahaz, ask for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. In other words, ask for a sign in heaven or in the depths. Ahaz didn't. Here is the sign. A woman in heaven, robed, clothed with the sun, with the moon and with the stars. One more thing. We're told that she cries out. And again, from the Isaiah passage, we would think, oh, this means because of the pain of childbirth, she's crying out. Except that the word that John uses is not about a woman crying out in pain. It is the word of proclamation. It is the word of taking an oath. It is the word used in the New Testament of someone who proclaims the revelation of God. So it isn't simply a woman in childbirth. It is someone who is about to deliver the Messiah. And she gives birth. She gives birth to a son, a male child, who will rule the nations with an iron scepter. And at this point, you might be thinking, Aha! I got this one. This is Mary giving birth to Jesus. Because we know it's Jesus, because of the passage that is quoted. It is from Psalm number 2. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. This is speaking of the Messiah. 
when the Messiah comes, he will rule. But John is very careful in the way he presents this. He doesn't start, as I said, with verse 5. He starts with verse 1. So otherwise, you know, if he started with verse 5, we'd think, oh, Virgin Mary, oh, clothed in sun, the moon, the stars, oh yes, this is Mary. And we would see her in an entirely different way than what is intended. No, the woman does not refer to a single individual. Yes, Mary did give birth to Jesus. But Mary is only able to exist because of all the women before her who have given birth. The woman single refers to the means by which God is going to achieve victory over the serpent. You have to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, the third chapter in the Bible. The serpent deceived Eve and she ate from the tree that she was not supposed to. And God says to the serpent, he curses the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman. In other words, it's going to be the serpent versus the woman. Or here in chapter 12, the dragon versus the woman. Okay? Between your seed and hers, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. This is the very first promise that is given in the Bible with regard to Messiah. And it is worth noting because the way that it is worded, something should go off in our head. Between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. Well, if you've taken biology, you know the woman doesn't have the seed. The man has the seed. Ah, but the virgin birth. There is no earthly father. The Messiah comes through the Virgin Mary. It's all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. But what is described is the victory of the seed of the woman. Some child will come from the woman and will defeat the serpent. But before we get to the Messiah, we have all these generations, all these women who are giving birth, and then their daughters in turn give birth, and their daughters in turn give birth. This long line that goes from Eve, the mother of all living, that goes all the way to Mary. And so the woman refers to God's people. It is a portrait of the, com- the covenant community laboring to bring forth the Messiah. One author puts it this way. She, that is the woman, is Eve, the mother of all living, whose seed will crush the dragon's head. She is also Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Jochebed, Hannah, and other women of the covenant who gave birth to deliverers, forerunners of the seed. She is also the Virgin Mary through whom the promises to the fathers met their fulfillment. But this cosmic figure, and she is a cosmic figure, cannot simply be identified with any one of these women. Rather, each of them individually embodied and portrayed before the world a different facet of the woman's meaning, imaging the labors of the church to give birth to the Messiah. We're then told she gives birth and the child is snatched up to God and to his throne. Even though this doesn't refer to the woman, we will consider it here. In this one statement, we have the birth, the life, the death, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus. Like that. The child is born and is snatched up to God and to his throne. Why, why put it so briefly? Well, it is not to somehow belittle what Jesus has done, but to explain something, I think, as carefully as we can understand it. The dragon will be defeated. 
the dragon will be defeated. And it will happen rather quickly. The dragon has been waiting and waiting and waiting. But he will be defeated. And then we are told that the woman will flee to a place in the desert prepared for her by God. And again, the Lord willing, we will look at this next week. Let's look at the second sign, that of the dragon. Uh, Again, this is symbolic. Another sign appears. An enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his heads. Now, since we we've have the woman, we should expect the serpent. If you have a woman, you're going to have the serpent. And we do. Here he is referred to as a dragon. The image is, again, pure Old Testament. Daniel chapter 7. Daniel has a vision of four beasts. They have seven heads, uh, ten horns, seven crowns. I mean, this is all from Daniel chapter 7. There they represent the world empires. It started with Babylon, then the Medes and the Persians, and then Alexander the Great, the Greek Empire, and then they would be replaced by the Romans. All of these represent Satan's attempt to control the world. Because if he controls the world, then maybe the seed of the woman will not be born. Maybe the seed of the woman will not come into the world and crush his head and he will have won. And the prophecy, the promise that God made way back in Genesis 3 will not be fulfilled. His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. A third of the angels fell with Satan when he was cast out of heaven. This will be mentioned again in verse number 9. Then we are told the dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour the child the moment he was born. So strong is this enmity between the serpent, the dragon, and the woman that one can almost get a, a mental picture of a woman who is about to give birth and the dragon is standing there just waiting for the moment that the child comes out so he can devour the child, kill the seed, and then the seed cannot crush his head. This doesn't simply refer to the birth of Jesus. This is something that Satan had been doing all along. The first child born into the world was Cain. And what did Cain do? He killed righteous Abel. And so God gives Eve another son, Seth, through whom the Messiah could be born. In fact, if you want, the next time you go through the Old Testament, look at it in this light as a record of Satan trying to kill the seed. Satan trying to make sure the Messiah is never born. You you could write a book on this. You could preach a number of sermons on this. And let's just go through a couple. Esau wants to kill Jacob. Well, Jacob is the one that God has chosen. Pharaoh wants to kill all the boys, all the boy babies of Israel. Saul tries to kill David, not once, but twice. and, And chases him all over the country trying to get a hold of him. Haman tries to wipe out the Jews. And it is... God, through his providence, he uses Esther to rescue the Jews. And many, many more instances. The dragon is sitting there. He's waiting. He wants to kill the seed so that Messiah will not come and he will not be defeated. I guess the best example for us, though, is when Jesus finally is born. And what happens? Herod. Herod sends his soldiers into Bethlehem and kills all the male children from two years old and under. Why? The dragon is trying to kill the seed. 
He's trying to kill the Messiah. But as we have seen, and the point of this passage is, this, is the dragon is defeated. There he is, he's waiting. And the way that John describes it, the child is born and is snatched up to heaven. And we might say, wait a minute, <clears throat> what about the ministry? What about the miracles? What about the preaching and the crucifixion and all that? Well, that's all there. But it's simply showing that, that Satan, the dragon, is not able to accomplish what he wanted to accomplish. He is defeated. That is, we, that is the first vision. And let me, let's quickly go through the second one. Because in the second one, we see that once again, Satan is defeated. That is the point of chapter 12. Satan is defeated not once, but twice. Look, if you would, we'll read verses 7 through 12. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They, overcome, they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury, because he knows that his time is short. A second defeat for Satan. The battle between Michael and the good angels, if you wish, against Satan, the ancient serpent, the accuser, and those who follow him. And Michael is, is victorious, and Satan is cast down to earth. As a result of this, people thank God. They rejoice. Salvation has come. The kingdom of God has come. The Messiah has come. The seed has been born. And so, rejoice in heaven. This is wonderful. Yeah, but for you people on earth, it's not so wonderful. Because he has been cast down and he knows his time is short. And he is filled with fury. Now let's read the rest of the chapter, and this is where we will end today. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the desert where she might be taken care of for a time, times, and half a time, out of the serpent's reach. Then from his mouth the serpent spewed water like a river, to overtake the woman and sweep her away with the torrent. But the earth helped the woman by swallowing or by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring, those who, hold, uh, those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Do you see what's going on here? Satan is defeated the first time when he tries to kill the Messiah. He is not successful. Then he is defeated in heaven and cast down to the earth. And he is enraged. He goes back after the woman. You know, the Messiah has come, and so in a sense he had left the woman alone. But now he comes back after the woman and he seeks to defeat her. 
He seeks to destroy her. And not only her, but if you saw in verse number 17, the rest of her offspring. Now, if the woman represents the people of God, her offspring are God's people. Since Satan could not defeat Christ, he could not prevent him from being born, there's a good chance that the promise God made that that he will crush Satan's head is going to be fulfilled. Satan is furious. And since he can't get at God, who does he go after? God's people. That's why there are martyrs. That's why there's persecution. That's why there's economic sanctions. That's why people are ostracized. It is the hostility that Satan has against God. But he can't attack God. He tried to destroy the Messiah and he was defeated. There was war in heaven. He was defeated. So now he's here on the earth. And what is he seeking to do? To destroy God's people. And in this part of the book of Revelation, John explains, the Lord through John, reveals why the church is being persecuted. It goes back to the beginning of time. It goes back to when Adam and Eve sinned and God said, I will put enmity. There's going to be a war between the woman and the serpent. And the serpent is going to strike the heel. Keeps trying to reach the woman and and does damage. Strikes the heel. But the Messiah from the woman will end the serpent's rule. He will crush his head. I find it interesting. I think I might have put it in here, but it might have confused the readers. Why isn't the crucifixion mentioned here? Because it's a wonderful example of, it would almost seem that the dragon had killed the woman's seed. Jesus did die. Yes, but what appeared to be a disaster was in fact a triumph. The lamb who was slain is victorious. Even though he is victorious, though, the dragon fights on. He attacks God's people. And John's readers need to know this. Because within a very short time of John writing this, the greatest persecution up to that point in human history against God's people breaks out. And they needed to be prepared. You might say, well, that's good for them. You know, we live in America. We're not persecuted. No, we're not. But we have brothers and sisters around this planet who are being persecuted for their faith. And we should stand with them. But there's something else. We may not be persecuted, but we are being tempted. And if we're not careful, we're being led astray. And you know, there are two ways to destroy the church. Either to try to kill its people... Or to get his people to leave the things they know to be true. I think persecution is tougher, but easier to see. Because then you know, okay, these people hate me because I'm a Christian. And I need to stand for the Christian faith. When you live in a society where it's like, hey, that's fine. You want to be a Christian? That's okay. I'm not, but you know, that's cool. You know, you want to be a Christian? That's okay. If we're not careful, we begin to make compromises. And it is part of the war of the dragon against the woman. 
the Lord willing, in the weeks to come, we will see how Satan, in fact, has attacked the church, not simply through persecution, but by enticing it, by tempting it. We need Revelation chapter 2 for us to understand why there is this conflict, why it isn't all over yet, why the church is persecuted, why we need to stand up for the faith. Let's pray together. Our Father in Heaven, we thank you for our brothers and sisters in the past and today who have stood up for the faith. Many of them have given their lives. They have obeyed your word. They hold to the testimony of Jesus, even if it costs them their lives. Frankly, it is hard, I think, for us to imagine persecution because we have such great freedom in this country. And because we have such great freedom, we have forgotten that there is a battle that is going on. The dragon tried to kill the Messiah, tried to defeat him, and he failed. And he fought a war in heaven, and he was cast out. And now he seeks to destroy us. We cannot stand in our own strength against him. We need your grace and your protection. We thank you for your spirit. We thank you for your word. May we realize that we need to put some effort into standing against the attacks of Satan. I thank you for this passage of scripture and how it tells us that, yes, there will be persecution, but you stand with your people. I thank you for this day we could meet to worship for the time that we will spend together afterwards in fellowship. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing the doxology. We're all going to meet in the back room and have a meal together and say our farewells to Mike and Marie. Our benediction comes from the last verse of the Bible, the last verse of Revelation. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen.